the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter Two, Across the Border. It wasn't easy to stay in a deep sleep. Between the cold and the cramps, Susan woke up many times during the night. Without thinking, she began to stretch her legs within the sleeping bag. The sharp cold beyond her small bubble of warmth prompted a sudden recoil. 5.03, her watch said. The sky was still dark, but she knew twilight would begin soon. Might as well start getting ready, she reasoned. Charon wouldn't be able to harp on her for being late. Peeking her head up, she could just barely make out the two dark lumps of the men's sleeping bags. While they slept, it would be the perfect time to quickly relieve herself. Outside of her sleeping bag, the cold was almost enough to take her breath away. Even with her underlayers, sweaters, coat, cap, and gloves, it seemed like every muscle in her body tensed up in protest of the cold. Seeing anything in the dark woods was difficult. Isolated patches of snow aided her navigation to a spot sufficiently far from their campsite. The starlight was too dim to see the twigs, however. They all seemed to be aimed at her face. As cold as she felt emerging from her sleeping bag cocoon, the exposure for personal business was startlingly cold. There would be no lingering. Having risen early and made little noise, she imagined that she could be packed and ready to go as the two men peeked their heads out for the first time. That would be a moment to relish. Her smile disappeared when she got back to the camp. The two men were up and almost done packing. She hadn't heard a thing. You didn't leave anything out there, did you, princess? Like a wad of toilet paper? No, it's in a plastic bag she grumbled as she rolled up her tarp and sleeping bag. Martin had explained to everyone the importance, while on patrol back in the woods, of not leaving behind any clues. He didn't want any strangers traveling through the woods to learn anything about them. The scouting mission wasn't a patrol, but she figured that the same rules applied. Some of her satisfaction returned when she was able to shoulder her backpack at the same time as Malcolm and Charon. A tie was better than a loss. Okay, Charon half whispered. Follow me, and no talking. They have microphones along the border. People give themselves away by blathering while they walk. They think they're alone. He turned and strode off down the slope. Susan followed, but Charon was hard to see in the pre-dawn darkness. She held her arms out in front of her, walking like a blind woman, in hopes of intercepting the face-bound twigs. Hearing Malcolm stumble behind her seemed like a petty thing to find joy in, but she did. She paid extra attention to her footing. They didn't do night patrols back at Martin's house, so she had little experience navigating dark woods. Pulling a night watch in the box beside the garage was cold and dark, but there were no evil twigs to deal with. Imperceptibly, the sky became a deep blue. Charon was a more visible silhouette in front of her. The twigs were still invisible, however. If it were not for the occasional fallen tree or rock to step over, the wood seemed homogeneous and endless. 
While fending off a swarm of twigs, Susan failed to notice Charon's raised fist. She nearly collided with him. Wait here. Charon's whisper was barely audible. He took several deliberate steps into a clearing, turned, and took two more steps. He brushed aside leaf litter, then gathered up several bundles. These are drone covers, he whispered. He handed Malcolm a bundle, then he handed one to Susan. I cached them on my way north. There's two leggings. Strap them on. Knees down, covering your boots. Don't cinch them tight. The big part is like a poncho. It has IR blocking film inside and insulation. Wear it loose. It'll mask your body heat to the drone's IR camera. Uh, how do we see where we're going? asked Malcolm. There's a hood, but keep it down. Watch the ground, not the sky. They fly drones around dawn and dusk. People trying to sneak through the border glow like a beacon. There's that many people trying to sneak out of New Hampshire? Susan asked. No. Some of them are smugglers coming in. Big money in black market food and medical supplies, said Charon. Feds want to stomp on that, too. When a drone is nearby, stop moving. Kneel down, pretend to be a bump on the landscape. The important thing is to not move. These covers aren't perfect, but the ground has enough warm and cool spots to blend in with. Movement is what gives people away. Susan unrolled her drone cover. It felt like a quilted mover's blanket. The outside had patchy snow camo patterns. The inside had straps to hold onto. The hood was bulky and had a mesh covering over the opening. Remember, Charon said, if you hear a drone, do not look for it. You'll only expose your warm face to the camera. Hunker down and wait until it's gone. Now, follow me. The big poncho made it even more difficult to move through the woods without getting snagged on branches. On the plus side, her face was protected from twigs. The sky was getting brighter. Charon was moving in increments. Every twenty yards or so, he stopped for a half a minute or more. Susan imagined that he was listening. At one point, Charon stopped suddenly. He let out a small pst pst signal. Susan froze and listened. The faintest sound of bees could be heard. Is that a drone? she wondered. Bees weren't likely in the middle of winter. Charon squatted down. His drone cover resembled an innocuous bump on the forest floor. Susan got on her knees. She knew that that would be more stable. The strange buzz grew louder. It took a mental effort to not look up for it. Instead, she tried to locate it with her ears. It was to the left and approaching them. She couldn't tell how high it might be, but given the tree branches, it couldn't be operating very low. She held her breath when the buzzing seemed to stay in one place. Had the camera seen them? Was one of her feet sticking out, giving them all away? She had to resist the urge to turn and check or pull her foot closer. Maybe the drone pilot would think her foot was just a rock, still slightly warmer from yesterday's sun. Remaining motionless was all she could do. The sound of the buzz dropped a half a tone. The Doppler effect. It was moving away from them. The buzz grew fainter. She imagined that if the pilot had seen anything, the drone would have remained hovering overhead to guide in some intercepting patrol. She resumed breathing. A full minute after she could hear the buzz no longer, she heard Charon moving toward her and Malcolm. That was close, Charon whispered. 
We've got maybe 10 minutes before it comes back this way. They've got limited signal range. We're only a few miles. Eight or 10 minutes between passes. Move out quickly, but I'll be stopping to listen. Pay attention. With that, Charon picked up the edges of his drone cover, like a Victorian woman might gather up her long skirts to cross a mud puddle. He set off through the woods at a brisk walking pace. At one of the listening stops, Susan heard the faint buzzing again. This time, it was farther behind them. Nonetheless, Charon hunkered down to become a lump again. Susan knelt and listened, making sure her feet were well covered. The drone didn't slow down this time, but flew steadily on. After another minute of silence, Charon rolled off his drone cover. He motioned for Malcolm and Susan to come closer to hear his whisper. That'll be it for the drones for a while. You can take these off. Roll them up and stow them. You may need them later, but not now. Uh, that's it? asked Malcolm. Two drone passes is all they got? They also have motion sensors, Charon said. See that tree over there? That one that leans left? Look about eight feet up. See that dark spot? Oh, yeah? That's one of their motion sensors. Truth is, the feds can't afford the manpower to seal off the hole of New Hampshire's border. Their plate is full enough trying to keep the lid on things in the cantons. With sensors and drones and the occasional light plane overflights, they try to spot crossing attempts with as few men as possible. If they spot something, then they can vector in some troops. Charon checked his watch. 7.45. The crew in the roadblock trailer will be packing up their things. As long as we steer clear of those sensors, there'll be nothing to interrupt their exit. Now, move out. Be careful. No big sounds. The light of dawn was a welcome bonus. Susan could see the twigs in advance and no longer had to walk like a blind woman. Their route took them across some narrow roads and past a few houses. Did anyone still live in them? They looked abandoned. There were no lights in the windows or, or people taking trash cans out to the curb. Of course, those were features of suburban mornings before the grid went down. Everyone in Massachusetts had been ordered to leave their homes and move into the cantons. No one was supposed to still be living in the hinterlands. There was talk about bands of killers and thieves roving the backwoods preying on people who refused to go into the protection of the cantons. If people did still live in those houses, they would stay well hidden. A row of small brown houses could be seen through the trees. Charon motioned for Susan and Malcolm to crouch down and wait behind some young pines. He traveled on to the edge of the woods. Susan followed his gaze. He was staring at the steeple of a small white church. He clicked his flashlight at the steeple. After a few moments, Susan saw that the dark void of one of the belfry openings had a red curtain. She was certain the opening had no such curtain when they arrived. Charon hung a blue cloth on the tree beside him. He stayed knelt behind a double maple tree. Susan could see that he was fidgeting impatiently. A sudden movement of Charon's head caught her attention. The red curtain had become a green curtain. Charon moved back towards them. Okay, we're clear to move in. Follow me and stay low. The three of them crouched ran to a spot between two of the little brown houses. They weren't regular houses. Taking a better look at them, Susan realized that they were the cabins of Camp Wanamaker. 
On some of her childhood ice cream jaunts, she stayed to play hide-and-seek with the campers, sometimes between these cabins. Wait here, Charon whispered. Everyone leaned against the right-hand cabin wall. After many long minutes, Susan could hear the crunch of footsteps approaching. A bear of a man with a broad face and a lumberjack beard rounded the corner. He held out a hand for Charon to shake. Oh, Charon, you made it back. This means you brought the scout? I did. Here she is. He turned and nodded to Susan. She could hear his emphasis of the word she. It was yet another subtle dig. Really, said the man. After a moment's hesitation, he stepped up to Susan to shake her hand. Byron Davis, former camp director, current rebel outlaw. He chuckled at his self-adopted new title. There was something honest in his eyes. He looked her squarely in the eye, no scanning. Susan Price, she tried to shake his hand firmly. His name sounded familiar. She recalled Martin mentioning the name. I'm supposed to say hi from Martin Simmons. Simmons? Byron's head pulled back a few inches. His face contorted slightly. Dustin's dad? Oh! Byron's face brightened with a wide smile. Dustin Simmons, that's right. That little rascal, what's he up to these days? Well, he and his wife Judy. Dustin got married? Um, yeah, yeah, anyhow. When the power went out, he and Judy moved back into the Simmons's house. Well, you two can get all caught up on personal news later, said Sharon impatiently. Shouldn't we be getting inside? Quite right, quite right, said Byron. This way. Byron led them between two more cabins to a modest shed with peeling brown paint and one small window. A long debris pile of broken picnic tables, roof gutters, and obtuse junk lay strewn beside the shed. Byron opened the door and ushered them inside. Take a couple of moments to let your eyes adjust, Byron said. There was some piece of equipment in the center of the shed, leaving just enough around the perimeter for the four of them to stand along the walls. Better? Byron asked. Everyone nodded. Though she could see better, there still wasn't much to see. Four bare stud walls, one tiny dirty window, a wood plank floor, and a stack of equipment that might be a well pump and a pressure tank. Byron held a big knife up to the wall for a moment. He waited, then moved a crate from the corner and lifted a trap door. Watch your footing on the ladder. It's quite vertical. Hold on tight. With that, he disappeared down the dark hole. Charon motioned for Susan to go next. She wasn't sure she wanted to go next. She was sure that she didn't want to appear hesitant. With one foot, she probed for the next ladder rung. It was further down than she expected. Descending into blackness was disconcerting. She counted the rungs. After seven, her foot felt a dirt floor. Hands guided her to one side. She could see two more shapes moving down the ladder until the little square of dim light was closed above them. The air felt moist and smelled of earth. It was warmer than outside. Even a few more degrees were welcome. Byron clicked on his little flashlight. Welcome to Beyond the Pump House. Yeah, like Alice. Yeah, but we don't have a looking glass. Get it? Huh? Alice and the... Yeah, never mind. 
In the faint spill light, Susan could see that they were in a room roughly eight feet square. The walls were made of random-width vertical boards. A few boards were painted in different colors. Most were bare, weathered wood. The ceiling was the floor joists of the pump house above. In the center of the room stood a manual well pump, larger than what Martin had, but essentially the same. Single wooden planks on the dirt floor denoted common walkways. Down this way, Byron shone his light into a narrow opening, is what we call married housing. Single men sleep in the end of the lodge. Charon, you and your buddy will bunk there. Women stay in the girls' cabin. Susan hadn't stopped to wonder what the living arrangements might be while at the camp. Hearing that there was a separate girls' cabin was comforting. Down this other way, Byron continued, is the tunnel to the lodge. Let's all head in there. You'd probably like some hot tea and a little snack after your travels. They walked single file down the tunnel. It was so narrow that Susan felt the urge to turn sideways, but with her backpack on, she was actually wider sideways than square on. Her shoulders rubbed the board walls many times. Charon, ahead of her, was a bobbing silhouette in Byron's wavering light. The tunnel opened onto a long room, dimly lit with solar LEDs. Three of the walls were made of large, rounded fieldstone. The fourth was a stud wall of rough-sawn lumber. The ceiling was made up of rough-sawn joists. Three metal columns stood in a line through the middle of the space. The air was warmer. Susan pulled off her stocking cap and gloves. "'Welcome to the lodge,' said Byron grandly. "'Actually, it's uh, the former crawl space, dug out a bit. The real lodge is above us. Still, it's the same address,' he chuckled to himself. This is my wife, Emily. She's our master chef of things seldom eaten. Over there is Xavier, head of security. Most of the others are out on their chores. Everyone's got several jobs to do around here. You'll get to know everyone's names soon enough. For now, have a seat. He ushered them to a long wooden picnic table in the center of the room. Emily brought a solar sidewalk lantern and set it in the center of the table. She looked almost frail. Susan thought her skinniness might be exaggerated because she wasn't wearing bulky winter clothes. She had nervous, darting eyes, though not in a shifty or devious sort of way. The darting eyes reminded Susan of her mother scurrying around the house after a phone call announced that Grandma would be coming in an hour. When Emily returned, she carried a tray of cups and a steaming metal pitcher. I'll bring you a little jerky and a rice ball in a moment. You can get started with a nice hot cup of tea. Take the chill off. Byron joined them after talking with Xavier. So, you're the scout who's gonna find the truck path through the hills. Uh, I guess so, said Susan. Hope it's more than a guess, said Byron. Susan winced at her choice of words. A little red light blinked on in the corner of the room. Emily pushed a button on the wall. All eyes turned to see who it was. The sudden uptick in alertness surprised Susan. She noticed Xavier move his hand to his holster. Charon and Malcolm did the same. Susan slid her hand behind her back to feel for the little revolver in her waistband. After a pause and some hurried footfalls on the floorboards, an arm carrying a big dead raccoon by the tail emerged into the light. Hal! 
Xavier's tone was disapproving, but his posture relaxed. You're early. I know, I know, but look what I got, said the man behind the raccoon. Hal was thin and looked to be in his late twenties or early thirties. This big guy was out rummaging around down by the river before dawn. The warm spell must have roused him. Single arrow right through the side. See? Shouldn't have damaged too much meat. Meat? thought Susan. This is Haldon, Byron said. Another of our security folks. Hal, put him in the snow on the north side of the lodge. Keep him cool. I'll have to deal with him later. Hal, this is the scout we've been waiting for. Hal, meet Susan. Susan, Hal. She's going to find that truck route over the hills west of the river. Now, really, said Hal with a challenging tone. I've checked those trails. They lead down to a swamp or back to the country road. Nothing leads west to the highway. A lot of people are counting on this food getting through, said Byron. We've had quite a crew of people working day and night on that bridge, on the assumption that you will get the trucks over the hill. The red light blinked again. Ah! Byron looked over Susan's shoulder. That should be our chief engineer now. After the sounds of feet on the wooden ladder, a thin black woman strode toward Byron, apparently unaware of the newcomers. She spoke with a trace of a French accent, or perhaps it was Jamaican. Monsieur Davis, the test with the cube van showed exactly what I told you it would. But you said all the wooden beams worked, said Byron. The deck is no worry. It is the frame above. There is too much play in the posts, in bays four, six, and seven. They will never support the load. Achoo, man, that bridge was never designed to hold up a modern truck. Can't weld that old steel without a ton of work. Take too long, anyhow. Best we can do is make some splints. For that, we're gonna need no steel. Justine, this is Susan Price. She's the scout we've been waiting for. Without hesitation, Justine grabbed Susan's hand and shook it vigorously. Oh, thanks be to God. I can only pray that I will get that bridge ready for your trucks in time. Small creases in the corners of Justine's eyes bespoke of a jolly spirit, despite her hurried and businesslike tone. Her deep brown eyes darted around like Emily's. She looked like a woman with a long to-do list and a short time frame. Uh, "'You'll be rooming with Justine and Kayla in the girls' cabin,' said Byron. "'I'll let her show you to your bunk later, after you've finished your snack. You'll be eager to get started right away, I'm sure.' Susan wasn't so sure how eager she felt. Had she oversold her knowledge of the fire trails and logging roads that laced through those hills? If the route was as obvious as she remembered, someone should have found it already. Why did they need her? What if there no longer was a route through to the highway? Hal said there was no trail. Many years had elapsed. Was the road gone? If she couldn't find the trail, she would be letting down a lot of people who were counting on her. She would be letting Martin down. That thought stung. She didn't like the pressure. She wanted to talk about anything else for a while. I remember this camp, she said. I used to ride my bike to Camp Wanamaker when I was a kid. That was maybe twenty years ago. My friend Melissa and I would ride across the bridge in order to get some free ice cream. Wait said Byron. You and your friend rode bikes here for free ice cream? 
Did one of you have a pink bike with green fenders? And a white basket, Susan added. Yes, a white basket. Byron pointed at her and flashed a broad smile. Good Lord, you're one of the wild kittens. Byron laughed and slapped his thigh. One of the what? Susan wasn't certain if she should be pleased with the recognition. Oh, Mr. Moody, the director before me, told stories about two wild kittens, well, that's what he called you, that would show up on their bikes in the summer, asking for ice cream. He described you and your bikes. He was really hoping he could encourage you to stay for chapel and hear the word. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I guess that was us. We just wanted ice cream. Susan felt like a cheap moocher. Ha, huh, fancy that. One of the wild kittens returns and knows our infamous computer hacker, Dustin Simmons. <laughs> Pretty small world. That is all fine, but I have a bridge to fix, said Justine. Come, let me show you the beams. Perhaps you can come up with some ideas for where to get some new steel. Right, said Byron, and you guys can get started scouting that trail. Still got a half a day to work with before the drones come. As they filed through the narrow tunnel, back toward the pump house, Susan felt less trepidation. Recalling her childhood memories, she knew that they had followed a clear logging road from the country road to the highway. The trail had to be there. She would find it again. She had to. Too many people were counting on her. Martin was counting on her. If you ever had one of those times where you've committed yourself to something and then had that sinking feeling that you've gotten yourself in over your head, that's where Susan is. There's no turning back, but up ahead doesn't look too good either. Thanks to Adam, Dave, and Brian for their recent support at Buy Me a Coffee, and a special shout-out to Anne for her continued support. You're all helping to make this project possible. Check out my page at buymeacoffee.com slash mickroland, all one word. The weather is getting colder, an even better time for a hot cup of coffee.